This is always one of my favorite Sundays, uh, Family Sunday, when I get to uh, talk to our kids first. So I love that. And uh, what I want to do first is I want to tell you about a new TV show that I'm watching, kids. How many of you like, you have your TV shows, your favorite TV shows, right? Um, So it's a documentary, which right away, I know you're going, that sounds super boring. That sounds like the kind of stuff that adults watch, and I'm not interested in that. But this one is about a surfer named Garrett McNamara. Maybe you've heard of him. He rode a 90-foot wave in a country called Portugal. It was the biggest wave ever surfed. Now, let me just give you, you know how big 90 feet is? Do you know how high that ceiling is right there? About 30 feet. So imagine three times the height of that ceiling. That's how big the wave was that he rode. And the cool thing about this wave is that it actually happens because there's a huge three-mile hole in the ocean, and this water comes in, especially when there's a, the tide is right and the wind and all that's right. It goes down in that hole and then shoots up out of that hole in this massive wave, 90-foot wave. And so this is what Garrett decided, that he was going to go out there and surf. But here's the thing. Before he went out there to surf this wave to play in the huge waves. For hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, the people in Nazare, Portugal, they fished there. And they would go out there and they would have to fight these waves and they would have to fight this wind and they were sometimes caught in these really scary and unpredictable big waves. So when Garrett came to be the first surfer ever there, they were kind of mad at him. They were kind of confused. Like, why does this guy want to come in and play in the waves? We've lost our, our family out there. This is a dangerous place. And so they felt a real lot of fear and concern about this, right? Why is this guy going out there for fun? They didn't, they didn't experience a lot of excitement or even courage about it. They, these storms could come up really, really quickly. And there's wind and there's currents that you don't even know where they come from. And they can push your boat all over the place. They can destroy the boat that you're in. And there's this guy out there and he's going to surf this big wave. He's going to take his jet ski out there and they're going to pull him in and he's just going to have fun out there. But the thing is, the people in in Nazareth, Portugal, felt a lot like the people in Jesus' day. A lot like his own disciples, how they felt about the sea. It's kind of scary. Some of Jesus' disciples were even fishermen, but it was still kind of scary. And the sea could be really hard on them. Really hard, really scary for them. Even though they had lots and lots of experience out on the sea. And so Jesus wanted to show them, just like the God that, that, that made himself known in the Old Testament, Jesus' Father made them known that he had power over their greatest fears and their hardest struggles. And the ocean was a picture of that. It was something that Jesus could understand, and, and it was something that fear and that struggle was something Jesus could help them with. Even the sea and the wind that felt so wild, that that felt so out of control for them was not too wild for Jesus. And that's why the story of Jesus walking on the water is in the Bible. It's part of a lot of the stories that God was telling about his power over things that are seem uncontrollable. Jesus promised that people's greatest fears and their hardest times, the scariest things that they'll face, wouldn't last forever. He has power over those scary things, too. So maybe, kids, I wonder, do any of you ever get afraid? Do you ever have any fears? Fears that feel like a deep and windy ocean? Maybe scary ways. Maybe you are scared of the ocean. 
Maybe you're going through some really hard times and it kind of feels like you've got the wind in your face and you can't, you, you don't know when all these hard times are going to end in your life. And so this story that we hear today in the gospel reminds us that Jesus will come and Jesus will help us. Sometimes it's hard to hear him. Sometimes it's hard to even understand that Jesus is there. He doesn't always make hard things go away right away. Do you know that? He doesn't always make the hard things go away right away. But the wind and the waves do not get to beat us in the end. And this is what Jesus is telling us. Yeah, they're strong, but they're not stronger than Jesus. So that's why he calls us to trust in him. Just like he calls his disciples and he says, take heart. He says, have courage. It's me. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And the other last thing I want to tell you is, this is why we also have each other to help each other have courage, to remind us to have courage, but to actually help us in the boat together so we can trust in Jesus while we're also working together, while we're maybe battling the wind and we're waiting on Him. We're helping each other know that we're going to get across to the other side. We are going to get to the other side and that Jesus cares about us. And he promises that when we've got no more to give, because think about how tired his disciples were. When we got no more to give, he's there. And so I want you to know that he's there for you. I had a lot of really hard times as a kid growing up, and I don't know maybe what you've had, but, um, and I have, I've had a lot of hard times as a grown-up, but I do trust Jesus. I do trust him. And our hope, my hope, is that you will trust him too. Amen? All right, let me say a prayer of our kids and then we'll continue on in this story. Lord, thank you for our children, those that are in this room, those who are uh, hearing the gospel behind me. Lord, I pray that you would bear them up, Lord, that you would teach them to trust you and help us as their mentors and their guides, their parents, their spiritual brothers and sisters to model the trust uh, that we're meant to have in you even through the hard the hard times, the painful times, the scary times. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Jesus, in this story, he's again in a wilderness. He's in the wilderness with his disciples, right? And he's in a desolate place. He had been uh, followed by hordes of people. Uh, We read the story last Sunday, and he's just fed those hordes of people, 5,000 from only five loaves and two fish. And uh, as this miraculous moment subsides in the evening you know it's beginning to end Uh, Jesus seeks some space Mark tells us he needs time in prayer with his father and so in what feels abrupt and that's where we're picking up today it feels abrupt he sends his disciples out across the sea of Galilee without him and it's worth asking at this point as many biblical scholars have uh, over the centuries why this is the immediate follow-on to this wilderness feast There's this incredible miracle, this wilderness feast, a clear sign that Jesus is in some sense gathering up the story of Israel to be a new Moses, for this to be manna made uh, available in the wilderness. And Jesus is providing this as a sign of the inbreaking kingdom. And yet he's going away, and they're going across the sea, and we know what happens. We might speculate, as with biblical scholars, that that maybe Jesus in this moment is feeling the pressure again. He's feeling the mounting messianic pressure of all that is is coming from others 
and that is going on inside of him. And with that pressure and, and this growing popularity, maybe he's feeling the same kind of temptation anyone might feel after performing such a display. When we think about this contrast, you know, Jesus has performed such a display, this time in the eyes of thousands. And so I'd suggest that he's faced this kind of temptation in the wilderness before. He's a, that time he was alone and he himself was hungry when Satan challenged him to turn a stone to bread, which was the challenge to what? It was a temptation to see his access to power as an end in itself. A power that would exalt him in people's eyes and in the end might shortcut the cross on his way to glory. So this abruptness and this need for Jesus to go into the wilderness in prayer, it's more than reasonable to imagine that Jesus needed a holy reset in the midst of all this outpouring of power. A holy reset to check that temptation alone on the mountain, yet he wasn't alone. He needed to commune with the Father in the loving assurance of the Spirit who would again send him out in his full purpose to quiet his soul in prayer and for Jesus to obediently receive afresh what would not be an instant thing, but it would be a long and even painful plan of salvation. In that moment of feeding in the wilderness, it could have felt like the pinnacle. It was far from it. And this next experience demonstrates that. Because meanwhile, the disciples are languishing. In what amounted to at least six to seven hours, the disciples had only gotten as far across the sea as would leave them in sight of Jesus, who's still on the land. And in other words, they had not gotten very far. They've been battling the wind all night. All night. Six to seven hours. With wind comes waves. They're bouncing around. They're trying to tack back and forth to get enough wind to just make a little bit of headway, a little wind in their sails. That is a sailor's nightmare if you've ever been sailing. These are experienced fishermen, and they are struggling mightily. The closest experience that I've ever had was just in a canoe. I didn't have to put up a sail, but I battled a headwind, and what should have only taken two hours took us four hours to get to the campsite. And it feels absolutely exhausting and you really do consider just turning around and going back are we ever actually going to get there and should we expend enough energy to do so so it's somewhere at this point between 3 and 6 a.m um, the fourth watch of the night and jesus comes to them walking on the sea but the details of verse 48 are really interesting if you want to look at them again in your order of service or your bibles this morning and they're actually a little disturbing at first and you might even miss this little detail it sounds as if jesus was just going to walk right by them defying the wind and the waves that may surprise us but not necessarily uh would it surprise mark's readers who not only remember the stories recounted in god's power over over the, the wind, the waves, over the water to part it as Elisha did with the cloak of Elijah today. And um, they're, they're thinking of many things, but one I would suggest that might have gone through their minds is Job 9, verses 8 through 11, which reads, God alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on but I do not perceive him. The disciples do see him, but they do not perceive him. They do not perceive him. They are exhausted. They're despairing in the middle of the night. They think they're seeing a ghost. 
And some of them, as I said, they are sailors. They're seafarers. So they're living with what was a popular belief in spirits on the water, water spirits. Just another layer of, of the fear, the nautical fear they would have felt. One example of this kind of fear is found in the Jewish Talmud when the rabbi shares what he was told by some sailors. Sinks a ship appears with a white fringe of fire at its crest, but it subsides when stricken with, a, uh, with clubs on which is engraved, I am that I am, Yah, the Lord of hosts, Amen, Amen, Salah. That's pretty intense, but they believed that they could, would encounter these kinds of spirits and that a club with the Lord's name and prayer written on it would defend them against it. So it's this kind of fear that would have undergirded some of what they're feeling as they see this. Their exhaustion is joined by absolute terror at the sight of what they think is a water spirit. And they're coming unglued, and it's understandable. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. Now let's just map this a bit. Jesus just provided this incredible miracle feast. He solves what seems like an impossible problem. All these hungry people out there here in the wilderness with nothing to eat now have full bellies. The disciples are no doubt on a high, right? Wouldn't you be? What they had just witnessed. Then right away Jesus says, get in the boat and go on over. They go from here to here. They go from glory to a struggle, a mighty struggle. And by all accounts, what they are trying to do, unless the circumstances change, is impossible. All the experience, all the seamanship that's assembled right there in that boat makes virtually no difference. And this is like whiplash in some sense. What's going on? Imagine all the questions you might have after going from here to here. Why would he send them out there to struggle? Why didn't he come with us? With just a word, he had calmed the wind and the waves just to, in our case, chapters before this. But now he's not even there? Then he finally comes to them, but what on earth? Literally. They don't know. But here's the thing, and we get a hint at the end of this little story. Even after a miracle, even after the wilderness, the 5,000, their hearts are hardened. Jesus is intent on addressing their unbelief. Here and here. Because they still didn't fully believe in him. The problem is never just the specifics of our circumstances, of their circumstances. The problem is that even those who witness the Lord's provision, even those like us who witness the Lord's power one moment, struggle to believe in him the next. Our hearts, our hard hearts, struggle to interpret, even the best of times, a miraculous feast for what it really is. We, like the disciples, have a hard time accepting Jesus for who he really is. So what we need to be reminded of as we think about these signs that Jesus performs, he didn't just come to merely calm the wind. He didn't come to make displays of power and wisdom. He didn't come to just walk on water, to feed hungry bellies, or to elevate the poor and the marginalized, to critique bad religion, or to subvert the empire. Jesus does all of this on the way to drawing people, God's people back to him in faith. 
That is the end game. That they will be sustained when there is no justice in the world. That they will be sustained when their bellies are hungry. That they will be sustained by God, come what may. This is what Jesus is doing. Miracles are signs of something greater. They are instruments to inspire faith in the one true God, but they don't guarantee belief. The justice, even in his own ministry, that Jesus would proclaim itself is a sign of the kingdom that's meant to ground our faith in the God of perfect justice, not in the outcome. But what Jesus calls for doesn't always compel us. Even a beautiful picture of justice. Or it doesn't compel us for long. So what Jesus wants to do is to work on our hardened hearts. What he came to do and is still coming to us to do is to inspire fresh trust in him. While the world then and the world now is as unpredictable as the wind. Jesus came to tether the worst and the best moments of our lives to his promise and to his plan to see us and the whole world through. Though the wind is howling and all our best, all our well-educated and our well-prepared efforts are coming to naught. And though the shoreline we just left remains closer than, than the one to which we're going, the struggle is, it is another opportunity for us to trust the one who commands the wind and the waves. The one who assures us of the shoreline that we cannot see. What Jesus is still at work doing in us and for us is this. He is grounding us in a reality that transcends present circumstances but doesn't ignore them. The reality of the gospel, friends, the story of the world's redemption, it actually harnesses the struggle as our meaningful experience of Jesus. It doesn't downplay or dismiss the struggle. The struggle is part of our arena of faith. It's useful. It's meaningful. With his very life, through his death, Jesus has spoken. Jesus is speaking to our struggle. Jesus is and has spoken to our terror. Hanging on the cross, Jesus struggled through blood loss and against gravity to lift his chest to expand his lungs for a breath until exhaustion left him limp, asphyxiating, dying. On the cross, Jesus took on his own parched lips, the cry of the psalmist, and every suffering, struggling, and terrorized human heart, saying, why, God, why have you forsaken me? But these aren't his last words. According to Luke, and the eyewitness accounts that Luke collects, he writes, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. In other words, it's up to you now, God. It's up to you now, Father. It's always up to you. And John recounts his final words as simply, it is finished. So with the body he was given, Jesus followed the path of obedience all the way to the end. To death, to the end of himself, to the full extent of human fear and of hunger and of suffering and of temptation, longing and grief. Jesus knew it all. Jesus experienced it all. It all um, brought his life to an apparent end. But 1 Peter 2 says that amid all that suffering and injustice, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So friends, we, we need not fool ourselves. Following Jesus can be truly 
exhausting. What He calls us to do is not without a sense of purpose and even joy, but sometimes it's just plain hard. It's not always emotionally fulfilling, as I said a couple weeks ago. We are not exempt from fear nor from frustration with God, or we're not exempt from, the, from frustration with the life that He seems to be giving us at the time. Frustration with the wind and our powerlessness over it. With the sea, its constant threats. Because the world is still as embattled as it is beautiful. Jesus does not exempt us from the headwind of seeming impossibility. And you probably know that in your bones. And we are those who know and should know with a deepening wisdom that one moment can be feasting and the next floundering. We are those who know that the presence of suffering does not mean the absence of God. Even when it feels that way. Because we are people of the cross. We are those Jesus is constantly calling to entrust ourselves to Him, calling us to deeper faith in the midst of the storm, turning our stories of churning seas into a witness of His faithfulness and love. And in the same letter I mentioned above, Peter encourages them. Peter, who was in this very boat, he writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. When you get to the other side. And let me just say, maybe it's smooth sailing for you right now. Or maybe you're facing the strongest headwinds of your life. Maybe your confidence and assurance are at an all-time high, and praise the Lord for that. Or maybe you're quaking in your boots with the wild howls and all the small eddies of doubt that are now beginning to feel like a vortex that is going to pull you under. But the promise that Jesus gives, that he embodies when he walked to them on the water and called them out of fear into faith, what he embodies is that everything is and will ultimately be subject to his power and under the command of his love. The chaos of the sea and all its various expressions will come to an end. And as Corey Asbury sings, the story isn't over if the story isn't good. That's the story we're telling every Sunday. When we say Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. It's the story we tell around this table every Sunday and hopefully at our best every day of our lives. Until all is made new, together with and for one another, we keep our hearts together. We're set on the shoreline. And we keep our hands on the ropes. We keep our hands on the oars. We're confessing our hardness of heart. We're confessing our unbelief. We're looking for Him. We're waiting and we're watching and we're worshiping the one who guarantees that distant shore that John, exiled and alone on the island of Patmos, spoke of, saying, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning 
nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Lord, we thank you that they are written. We thank you that John did write them down. We thank you for what he saw. We believe them. Lord, help our unbelief. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.